Good morning, everyone. Let's go over our announcements. We're kind of Spartan today. I see we got some families on vacation. Uh, Clayton's are are indisposed, and uh, I'll be standing in for Doug today. Uh, but we welcome all our visitors and hope that uh, the Lord blesses you. Uh, our announcements are a little Spartan as well. Uh, offering envelopes to the offering box. Uh, Andrea is still our contact. Our days and praise booklets are in the lobby along with facts and facts and we got a whole stack of them. So please avail yourself to those. Now most of you uh, have seen the iron up up in the back of the, the church and I'll give you a real brief uh, explanation of what's going on. Our contractor was able to drill the holes, get them inspected, pour the cement, get that inspected, put the iron up, and hopefully we'll have it inspected tomorrow where we can go further on and continue. And if the trusses come in on schedule, there is a possibility that he will complete his part of the contract by the end of August or first week in September. Am I right, Dale? Right. And that's the main thing that we're waiting right on. And as COVID things got everybody, you know, shifting sideways on this. So it's, it's just been kind of a nightmare for the contractors. So uh, keep that in the back of your mind and in your prayers that uh, we can get this done in a timely way before the snow falls. So, okay. Our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Psalm. Psalm 97, and it is a responsive reading. So if you'll take your red hymnals, go to page 820 in the Trinity, and stand with me when you come to your... time. Let's begin. <clears throat> the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols Worship him, all you Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above the heavens. Your 
Let those who love the Lord hate evil. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired reading. Dale, would you begin our service in leading us in prayer? I sure will. Our gracious God, we are so thankful for this day that you've given us to come out and worship you. Just ask, dear Lord, that you would be with um, Kim and Janelle and their family as they're away, Ken and Del are not here, Raptors uh, are not here. Please remain standing. Will you take your red hymnal and turn to number 32, the red Trinity hymnal, number 32, 32. Oh, God. 
<coughs> At this part of the service, we like to take a request from the congregation. If you have a favorite hymn from one of the books, we have several. But try to keep it to one of the books, because I don't wing it very well. He does. Anyone? Anybody? Absolute chess. One ninety in the brown. Scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, 
Please stand when you come to it. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son will soon, soon shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. May God bless the reading of his word. You take your red hymnal and turn to number 30. Number 30 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is Genesis chapter 15. Our last study in the series, The Patriarchs, introduced us to the mystery character Melchizedek, a title, not a name. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Hebrews 7 describes him as having no father, no mother, no genealogy, without beginning, having no end, made like the Son of God in his divine personage. You see, that is what God is as a person, having no birth, having no death, no heritage or genealogy whatsoever. Just there, always there. It's a hard concept for us because everything that we know and experience has a beginning and an end. That's the way we think. We think of that in the material world. So to talk about some person that was always there, the word is eternal, eternal in his person, eternal in his service or work, So we learned of Melchizedek that God appointed him to be a priest forever. Hebrews 7 verse 3 says, Well, you'd have to be eternal to have something like forever attached to you. Now not only was Melchizedek king of righteousness, he was declared king of Salem. Salem is a Hark back to an old Hebrew word, shalom. You've probably heard that, meaning peace. It's an old name for Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And we learn from that that there is no peace apart from righteousness. In Christ, the two are wedded together and issue the only hope for mankind to ever enter a state of tranquility and rest and peace. Now, because the Levitical priests died off, Jesus is a better priest in his person, yes, but also in his service. The scripture says he ever lives to make intercession for his people, which attached to his once for all atoning sacrifice of himself, saves completely those who come to God through him. Hebrews 7, verse 25. There's nothing left unfinished. That's what I am saying. There's no loose strings, as it were. The work of Christ is complete. And if that were not enough, Jesus sealed his promise of salvation with an oath pledged upon the integrity and power 
of his own indestructible life. So today's study considers the very needed and very comforting assurance from God that he and he alone is, Genesis 15 verse 1, our shield and our reward. So as we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Heavenly Father, teach us from the word of God the things you want us to learn about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand the uniqueness of his personage. He's the Son of God. And as such, he is unique and exclusive in terms of his person and also in his work. And help us to be blessed as we understand that. If we're struggling today with faith, grant us faith. If we're struggling with our sin, grant us repentance that we may come to know this holy and righteous God. We pray that you will bless us with our study this day in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We look at Genesis 15 and we consider the fact that God is our shield and reward. When we read in verse 1 of God's word to Abram, what does it say? It says, do not be afraid. Now, these words are in the imperative mood, which, as you know, means that they are a command by God. And since it is in the negative, do not be afraid, the idea is stop being afraid. Which tells us that at the present time, Abraham was afraid. And so God is saying, stop being afraid. And our first response might be, what in the world does Abram have to be afraid about? Didn't God just deliver his enemies into his hands using his own homegrown militia as an army? Chapter 14, verse 20. <coughs> Hasn't the Lord blessed his every move? I mean, think about it. How many patriarchs of the day could boast 318 trained male servants, soldiers, in his own household? Plus their wives, plus their children, and the wherewithal to support that larger group. We're probably talking over 600 people here. So it would appear to us that Abram had the world by the tail. He seemed to be doing just fine. And God commended him on his battle against the Federation of Wicked Kings, and he conferred a blessing upon him through the priestly ministry of Melchizedek, chapter 14, verse 19. What could possibly make him afraid? Let me suggest a few things. Firstly, I would suggest that perhaps he's having a spiritual attack by the evil one. 
It's not specifically stated in our text, but it seems to be a pattern in Scripture that God's people often experience fear or dismay after a tremendous victory. Maybe you have experienced this yourself. I mean, just let us gain an answer to something that we have been praying about for weeks, or let it be let us be encouraged to see God acting in our immediate family or in the church family in such a way that brings God glory and us peace and whammo. Our spiritual footing is knocked out from under us and we find ourselves fallen and bruised and sore and full of fear. I've had this happen. In fact, this happened to me last week, last Sunday. I worked hard studying all the spiritual ramifications of Melchizedek, knowing that he is likely the most beautiful and thorough picture of Christ's priestly ministry that we have in the Bible. And it was an uplifting study for me. So what happened? Well, everybody and their brother became sick at home. Or in the hospital. That was a serious illness. One person lost their job. There was a death in a family. This is in our little church. Now just one of these events makes me wonder what on earth God is doing or what's he trying to say. And with many of these events piled up like child's building block set, it becomes evident that this is not child's play when these things happen. When things go from bad to worse, when you're trying your best to be faithful to God, it may very well be an attack of the evil one through instilling fear. Fear that you have or are sinning Fear that God is not pleased with your service. Fear that you have crossed some unseen line because obedience to God and you now you've become disobedient. Fear that though once blessed, as in the case of Abram, now it's time for a trip to the woodshed and some serious attitude corrections. Fear takes over primarily because of the unknown. Now without in the least disallowing that yes, we, and I include myself, may be sinning or indifferent to God with regard to faithfulness and service, or maybe we're sloppy or negligent in our prayer life, there is also the possibility that our fear is due to the ancient fearmonger himself, and I am referring to Satan, whose Treachery often includes robbing God's people of the joy and the comfort of a repentant spiritual victory. We read in the scripture, 2 Chronicles 32 verse 1, After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, and he laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. Second Chronicles 32, verse 1. 
So, faithful Hezekiah is faced with the vast army of the pagan, God-hating king of Assyria, Sennacherib. What is going on? And Sennacherib's boast is like that of another wannabe potentate, the disenfranchised, exiled, fallen angel, Lucifer, who boasted, I will make myself like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verse 14. Sennacherib had a bravado as well. Listen to him. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, The Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land, their people from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Wow. Pretty arrogant, isn't he? Pretty self-confident. Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Quote, Just as the gods of the people of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. And then, I'm reading, still reading scripture. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke against the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. 2 Chronicles 32, verses 10 through 20. So we see here, Hezekiah ran to God in prayer, not away from God. The psalmist put it this way, My slanderers... The word is diabolos, Greek word for the devil, a slanderer. My slanderers pursue me all day long, the psalmist says. 
Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long they twist thy words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, eager to take my life. Psalm 56, verses 2 and following. You know, Jesus himself said of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, verse 44. So the first thing we have here is fear that is a result of a spiritual attack by the evil one. So that could be the first reason for Abram's fear. Secondly, there's the possibility of the retaliation of this federation of kings that Abram had just whipped in battle. So fear of powerful men. I mean, were they just going to take this lying down? How powerful was the Syrian king federation that came out against the king of Sodom and the other cities of the plain? Well, Genesis 14 verse 7 tells us that in their previous battles... This federation of kings, and let me read it for you now, conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who are living in Hazan, Tamar. Check your Bible maps. You all have them in the back of your Bible. Look at the territory and occupied by the Amalekites and the Amorites. Wow, it is a lot of terra firma. A lot of geography. These nations, the Amalekites and the Amorites, comprise two of the most fierce warrior people that we have in the Old Testament times. Perhaps you recall that when Israel came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership, the Amalekites attacked them. And we read, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands... The Amalekites were winning. Exodus 17, verse 11. And on that occasion, you'll recall that Aaron and Ur held his hands up for him. Because he was getting so tired. Now this rivalry went on for years. And even after Israel clamored for a king, Saul was given the commission to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Which, by the way... He refused to do. And it cost him his kingdom. He wouldn't do it. Now the Amorites were no better. They blocked the way to the promised land when Israel came up out of Egypt. And they had to be soundly defeated on the east side of the Jordan River before Israel could cross under Joshua's leadership into the promised lands. So what I'm saying is that just because Abram had won a skirmish with those who had defeated these nations was not assurance that they would not retaliate with greater force. Usually that happens. They just regroup 
say, what's this, this guy, Abram? We, let's take this guy out. We ask, well, wouldn't God protect him again? And the answer is yes, likely. But wicked men carry a persona about them that terrifies law-abiding citizens. We're seeing this in our own day with the brutality and the utter disregard for human life that we are witnessing in the ISIS terrorists. A story came out some years ago of American young men who were arrested as they tried to sneak off and join ISIS. That could have been your daughter or your son. Very alarming. And the terror group Boko Haram of North Africa pledged allegiance to ISIS, thereby strengthening their number and their resolve. And one interviewee of an ISIS captive bragged, We have ISIS sleeper cells in every major city in America, and we're just biding our time. That's pretty scary. It's natural to have a fear of powerful men, of bloody men, of people whose conscience is not ruled by Christian morals, and whose own warped teaching is bathed in callous Hatred devoid of love for one's fellow man. They just as soon shoot you as to spit on you. And while we take measures to protect ourselves against unconscionable evil like this, Abraham knew, and we should too, that God does not always intervene. I mean, sometimes... God allows his people to suffer defeat. Why would he do that? Well, to intensify the coming judgment on the persecutors. You can read about that in Romans 2. To chasten us for being lazy and indifferent to our spiritual responsibilities. Maybe even to spank us for being haughty and at ease with our sin when we should be flat out on our face pleading for God's forgiveness and mercy. There are many reasons. And then, you know, sometimes God allows us to be persecuted that he may get glory from his confessing church. We read in scripture, John writes, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelation 12, verse 11. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, wrote in his defense of Christianity these words. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. By which he meant, The more the world kills Christians, the more the world attacks the church of Christ, the more that church will grow. It's the direct opposite of what is intended. 
It's Satan's philosophy about Job all over again. His philosophy, which he had the audacity to state to God. Satan said of Job, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. Job 2 verse 4. God, I know Job better than you know him. All I have to do is turn up the heat a little bit and he'll curse you to your face. I know Job better than you. But Job never did buckle. Even when so weak and so tormented, even on the verge of death, being able, as it were, to sense that his end was near, even then Job's testimony was this. Let me read it to you. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another And how my heart yearns within me. Job 19, verse 26 and 27. The psalmist sang this hymn of praise. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Would evil men advance against me to devour my flesh? When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble. They will fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. I am still confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait. For the Lord. Psalm 27 verse 1 and following. So whatever the fears were. That Abram was experiencing in our text. God comes to him and he says. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. Verse 1. Moreover. Abraham was sustained by God. God as his reward. What do you make of this second affirmation by God? Also found in verse 1. I am your very great reward. King James Version says exceeding great reward. Wait a minute. How does this fit into the narrative? Well it harks back just one chapter. In which Abram returned from rescuing Lot and the people of the plain cities, along with all of their recovered goods. But when it came to, well, let's divide the spoils, now that we have recaptured everything, Abraham responded, count me out. What? 
Really, Abram? But, but, but you've earned your share in the booty. I mean, you spent a lot of your own resources. You deserve to be rewarded for your effort. You know, to the victor belongs the spoils. You've been part of the victory. But Abraham reasoned this way. I have raised my hand to the Lord, the God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And I've taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Chapter 14, verse 22 and following. This is unheard of. I do not know the dollar amount of Abram's loss here, but it was substantial. And you don't do battle against four kings and their armies and recover all the spoils of their multi-city successful campaigns and not end up with a pile of cash and commodities. Those kings had defeated Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulun, Bela, Five cities in all. Five treasure troves of booty numbering into the millions of dollars in our currency. But Abram turned it down. I don't want any of it. Not only so, but in addition to this loss of payback, Abram paid out from his own pocket a tenth, a tithe of everything. Chapter 14, verse 21. And to this, the cost of footing the bill for the maintenance of his own 318 servants. It's reasonable to conclude that this little skirmish cost Abraham a pile of money. It brought into him a, a sum of great debt. I was speaking to a real estate agent some time ago and he told me that when his clients begin to have doubts about purchasing a piece of real estate, he kind of backs off from pressuring them to proceed. Hmm. And he told me why. He said, I do not want any of my customers to have buyer's remorse those were his words I don't want any of my customers to have buyer's remorse buyer's remorse what's buyer's remorse buyer's remorse is when you pay out a sum of money for something you just thought you had to have but after you bought it you sense that your purchase wasn't the best decision that you could have made Somehow the joy of ownership didn't materialize. The prized possession became a colossal flop. Only now it's too late. You're stuck. <laughs> you can't undo it. The seller has your payment, and he's about, not about to give it back. In the church, there's another possibility, which I call... 
giver's remorse. Giver's remorse. That's when a person gives a sizable contribution to the church, and as soon as the money makes its way into their hands and off to the church treasury, they begin to second-guess their generosity. Why did I? Why did we put $2,000 in the building fund? What were we thinking? How foolish. I mean, $2,000, that would buy my wife that new washer and dryer set that she needs. It, it, it would buy the lawn tracker that I need. Oh, but it's too late. I, I can't take it back. I'm ashamed to take this to the church and ask for a refund. Giver's remorse is what characterized Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Christian couple in the church of Jerusalem. The church was experiencing some very hard times financially. There was an abundance of widows in the church that needed to be supported. They were having trouble making ends meet. So we read, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses, they would sell them. And they brought the money from those sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And that money was distributed to anyone as he or she had need. Acts 4, verse 32 and following. What is this? Well, <laughs> they saw the need, but they then met the need through generous donations, some of it being sacrificial. So much did this work that the next chapter, Acts 4, verse 34, says, there was not a needy person among them. Wow! <laughs> they went from need to no need. And while this was going on in the material realm of the church life, the Jerusalem church was also experiencing a spiritual revival right in the midst of this extraordinary generosity. Luke tells us, chapter 4, verse 33, With great power the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. In the midst of all this excitement, Ananias and wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property, and it was a tidy sum. What should they do? They thought, hmm, well, we know that Barnabas, one of the other church members, also sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money and put it all at the apostles' feet, Acts 4, verse 37. With the idea, of course, that money would be distributed to the needy. So we'll, well, we'll, we'll do that too, with the money that we got. But before their gift made it to the collection box, giver's remorse set in. I'm calling it giver's remorse. Sapphira, what do, you, what do you think about this? Uh, this is a lot of money. Uh, maybe we should keep back part of the money for ourselves. 
And so we read with his wife's full knowledge, Acts 5, verse 2, that's exactly what Ananias did. Giver's remorse had captured them both. But that was not their sin. No. Their sin was explained by Peter. Peter said to them, Didn't the property belong to you before it was sold? Implied answer, yeah, of course. We had the deed right here. It was our property. Peter goes on. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Well, yeah. We had the money in hand. So Peter said to them, You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What was the lie, you ask? Well, I know. The lie was not giving a portion of the proceeds to the church. Keeping that back. No, the lie was giving a portion of the proceeds to the church and letting everyone think that like Barnabas, they had given all. That was what was wrong. You see, giver's remorse set in, and what they originally intended to do, they abandoned, but continued to pretend to have given the total amount. And you know on this occasion, they were both struck dead by God. Very serious to lie to God. And I've said all that to say this, there is no giver's remorse indicated in our text about Abram. Still, this rescue of his nephew Lot had cost him dearly, and it wasn't likely to be paid back by Lot or by anyone else. The spoils of war were not a fitting payback for a man who in faith had brought the battle in the name, fought the battle rather, in the name of the Lord. So God says to him, verse 1, Abram, I want you to know something. I am your very great reward. I am your very great reward. What do we learn? Whatever dangers may loom on the horizon for us, God himself is our shield and very great reward. What's the purpose of a shield? Well, one thing we know, it is not an offensive piece of weaponry. It is not like a sword or a javelin or in our day a gun. A shield, usually made out of beaten brass, is a defensive weapon. Its design is like the Kevar bulletproof vests which policemen wear while they're on patrol. The vest does not shoot back at any assailant, but it protects the wearer from those who shoot at them. It absorbs the impact of the bullets or deflects them in such a way as to keep the wearer of the vest safe. 
So God is saying to Abraham, the great I am of the universe, the ever-present one, I am your shield against anyone and anything mortal or supernatural that would attempt to destroy you. Paul put it this way, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when, not if by the way, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Ephesians 6, verse 11 and following. The beauty of this text is how Paul cuts to the quick. He goes right to the heart of the matter. He doesn't talk about tyrannical government takeover. He does does not refer to Islamic terrorists or mafia thugs or white-collar embezzlers, or identify thieves who rob bank accounts. No, he addresses the mastermind Satan, who is behind all this evil, and in so doing he tells us how to shield ourselves using God's spiritual armor, especially the shield of faith. The shield of faith. And the shield of faith is evident through praying in the spirit. Prayer is locking, rather looking outside of ourselves for help. Secondly, whatever losses we experience in loving, obeying, serving Christ, our author tells us that Jesus is our exceedingly great reward. Jesus taught, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or about your body, what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Matthew 6, verse 25. Conclusion, verse 31. So, don't worry, saying, oh, what shall we eat? Oh, What will we drink? Where will we get clothes to wear? For the pagans, says Jesus, run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Oh, okay, but what does that mean to me and my family? So he knows that I need them. 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What about financial reversals due to bad business decisions? Stock market crash, stupid extravagant spending, robbery by thieves, confiscation of your possessions by corrupt authorities. What about those things? Well, Jesus says, life is more than food. Body is more worth more than clothes. Luke 12, verse 23. One day Jesus spoke to a rich young ruler who was unwilling to denounce his love of money and follow Christ. You know the account. Observant Peter responded to the Lord, Lord, we have left all we had to follow you. Now, he's not boasting. He's just telling the truth. It was a reality. The disciples had left all to follow Christ. So Jesus responded, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Luke 18, verse 28 and following. Know what that is? It is God saying to Abraham, the father of the faithful, I am your exceeding great reward. We ask, how can a promise of God made to Abraham be legitimately applied to us thousands of years later? Well, the first answer is that by faith, we believers are Abraham's descendants or children. Paul put it this way, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, verse 7 and following. That's the first answer. The second answer is found in our text, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Now this is the first time in the Bible that the word vision is used. It is by vision that God communicated his will to his prophets. And one of the tasks of the prophets was to receive or to speak forth the truth of God's word to his people. Much of it futuristic as well as immediate now sometimes. So when we come to the new covenant, we learn that the promises made to Abraham and about Abraham came to him in his prophetic capacity so that God's eternal pledge to Abraham applies not only to him, but to his spiritual family. Who's his spiritual family? You and I. Those who have the same faith in God that Abraham had. Let me read it for you. Paul says, therefore the promises come by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, that would be the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith, 
of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Romans 4, verse 16. Wow. I can say as a believer today in God through Christ that I am a child of Abraham. You can say the same if that's true of you. So this means, among other things, that when God said to Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward, that promise applies to all of Abraham's children of faith as well. When Jesus told Peter, no one who has left, and he lists all these things that people leave, no one who has left father, mother, all these things, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, they'll receive eternal life. Peter was hearing essentially what God promised Abram. I am your exceeding great reward. Peter, don't you know this? You're not going to be a loser for following me. Let it be known to all here today that Peter believed Jesus. His answer is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and following. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 2 Peter 1, verse 2 and following. So Christ Jesus is both our protective shield, our defense against all that would seek to destroy us, and in any and all who have lost goods or even life because of your Christian testimony. Christ is our exceeding great reward, the depth of which no one can plummet in this life or in the next. Brethren, to have Jesus is to have the Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, as your Savior and benefactor. And it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't. The most He is called the Most High, the Creator of heaven and earth. My Savior is the Creator. He's the benefactor, my benefactor. Is the creator of this world? Yeah, and who's going to go up against him? Who's going to go against him and win? Nobody. Not the forces of hell. We're safe in the keeping of God, dear son. Father, we thank you for this salvation. It's beyond ourselves, it's outside ourselves. It's something you do for us on, on our behalf. 
The only part we have is to be recipients of such grace. And we are by faith. When we think of the Old Testament saints, we sometimes think, well, what did they know? That what? You know, that was the Old Testament. They just kind of lived hand to mouth. What did they know about Jesus and salvation? Well, they knew enough to be saved. And they knew enough to be the model by which God judges and measures us. We're called Abraham's children, his offspring. We're identified with his faith. So his faith must have been genuine and real. Not a fantasy. Say, so well, what could he have known about Jesus? Well, he, he believed that God would send a son. That he would give him a son, an heir. And it wasn't Isaac. Paul tells us it wasn't Isaac. The seed was Christ. That's who Abraham saw as coming. Grant us the same faith. Make us children of Abraham, children of Christ the Savior. And for any that are outside of Jesus today, come to them and meet with them. Draw them by faith to this one alone who can bring us into peace with God. And we'll thank you for what you do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is what? I don't have it. What? For what? Oh, number four. Okay. Four in the brown hymnal.
I think it is very true that um, in this life we can't fully grasp the marvel of God's grace to us. It's going to take a spiritual renewal of mind and heart in order to plummet the depths of what God has done for us in Jesus. Bound for hell and destruction and no way to save ourselves. And God just steps in to our world. And how's he going to redeem us? Well, a man is going to have to die for us. A man has to represent us. So God sends his son, his beloved son. And that representation was carried through the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. All of those things are very, very important. When he comes again, we will be complete. We still sin now. We still need his grace. The days come we're going to be like him, the scripture says. I can't wait. I don't know what it's all going to be like. But what I do know looks very, very good. Do you know Christ this morning, the Savior? Say, well, what do I have to do? You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that that cross was about you. You can't think of sin as something the other guy does. You can't think of judgment as something due the other person. How to take it personally. And when we do, God enlightens us as to the solution, which is his son. It is a grief to realize that somebody dies for your sins. That's true. But that's the way God has it planned, the only way it is. We need a perfect man to die for imperfect men and women. And Christ is the only one that fills that bill. Our Lord, we just pray that you will bless us with the truth, the sufficiency of Jesus. It isn't us plus him that works out our salvation. It is you, dear Lord, through your Son, doing it all. Bless these truths to our heart. And if there's some here today that don't know you, may this be the day that you find them And you grant them faith and repentance that today they might begin a new life, a new spiritual life found only in Jesus. And we'll praise you for what you're going to do for them in this world and in the world to come. In Christ's name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. We are dismissed.